Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and today's topic is infrastructure development. President Jokowi, of course, has made infrastructure a major focus of his government, with his promises including thousands of kilometres of new roads and rail tracks, new airports, seaports and dams, and a massive increase in Indonesia's electricity generation capacity. To discuss why Indonesia has an infrastructure deficit and how the government can best address it, I'm joined today by Associate Professor Jamie Davidson from the Political Science Department of the National University of Singapore. He is the author of a recent book on infrastructure development, Indonesia's Changing Political Economy, Governing the Roads. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for your invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Now, could I start by asking you, uh, we've seen both former President Yudhoyono and the current President Jokowi come into office pledging massive infrastructure construction to drive economic growth in Indonesia. What sort of infrastructure problems does Indonesia face and why have they been so difficult to resolve? I guess there's many sources for this. One of them has to do with Indonesia's size and its wealth. It has money, but it's not an extremely wealthy government historically. And it's huge. It's humongous. And it's a difficult terrain being an archipelago. So it faces great challenges. The Dutch put in some infrastructure, but they didn't put in too much. But what they did was very much concentrated on Java. So by the time Suharto takes over in the mid-60s, and he gets a lot of credit for building a lot of Indonesia's modern infrastructure, he started from such a low base. So there was so much to do. He can get credit for the infrastructure that he built. He could also be criticized for not doing enough and not going farther enough. So given Indonesia's huge size, and including his demographics, particularly on Java, where it's so crowded, so any type of big project is certainly going to hit somebody's property. And then you're talking about expropriation of land, eminent domain with weak state institutions, weak rule of law. You put that all together and you have a problem. And so that's you know, a few reasons why it's been so difficult to resolve. In rolling out roads, ports, power generation capacity across the country, we've seen Jokowi both massively increase the budget allocation to infrastructure, but also inject capital into Indonesia's state-owned enterprises and give them a prominent role in building this infrastructure. Is the prominent role for state-owned enterprises typical of how infrastructure has been built in Indonesia, or, or is this something new that Jokowi is doing? Well, this has a history to it, and it's pretty much comes like in phases or in waves. Of course, under Suharto, in the 60s and 70s, it was mostly built through state-owned enterprises or SOEs. That tied into the dominant thinking in development practice at that time, that it was the state that was supposed to build these projects. Then... Uh, as we move into the 80s and you have the rise of more neoliberal thinking in the international realm, and then you have the rise of Suharto's children who turned to business, then you start having a little bit more of the origins of what you, we call the PPP, or the public-private partnerships. And so you had a mix. The state was still the dominant, but there were times when you would let the private sector take over infrastructure projects, particularly those in which it was felt that they could make a, a profit from. Yuriono tried to build on that kind of World Bank, IMF promote, promoted uh, PPP framework, 
And he had divided up or, or kind of tendered out a decent amount of contracts, not just in toll roads, but in ports, electrical uh, generation as well, to the private sector. And the results really were quite poor, uh, very disappointing. After eight years, Yudo Yono didn't have that much to show in terms of infrastructure progress. And I think Jacoby or his, his economic henchmen decided that it was easier to maybe do this under or at least through SOEs, you get more control over them than you do over private sector entities. So there's definitely been a concerted shift toward the SOE approach under Jacoby. You mentioned the World Bank and the IMF push more private sector involvement. Are there particular downsides to doing things through state-owned enterprises? For the World Bank and the IMF, typically a state-owned enterprise equals vested interest and inefficiency. They typically believe the private sector is more dynamic, more innovative, more cost-conscious, and more profit-oriented, which will lead to better service delivery. You look around the world, and, and, and sometimes that view holds, and sometimes it's quite challenged. Uh, I mean, I live in a, right now in Singapore, where a lot of the infrastructure, which gets graded out as, as high quality, uh, has been built through the state development ap- approach. So uh, it's a real mixed bag. When you look at it cross nationally, and I mean, when we're talking private sector involvement in Indonesia, uh, I guess the thing that's really been generating headlines under Jokowi is Chinese investment in, particularly in ports and power generation, and that's been controversial at times within Indonesia and certainly got international attention. But has it really? Has there really been a large degree of foreign uh, involvement, foreign investment in infrastructure in Indonesia, or when we talk about private sector investment, is that a, mainly a domestic thing? It's been mainly domestic, but the foreign direct investment in the infrastructure sector has been noticeable. Uh, under Suharto, the Japanese built a lot of uh, early projects, the Americans as well, especially uh, telecom. So it's been a real mix. Then there was the state investment, and then the, the kind of quasi-private sector, kind of crony, uh, palace children uh, investments as well. In terms of the Chinese, uh, that's quite new. It's quite new. The Chinese have gotten a lot of press, a lot of attention for infrastructure investments, for example, like in Africa. So now they've turned their attention to Indonesia, and they do have a lot of money. Some of this is because of, obviously, Chinese wealth. They want to invest. But also has to do with Northeast Asia rivalries. Japan has typically been the leader of East Asian investment in Indonesia, and so competition with the Japanese, the Chinese certainly are looking for a toehold in Indonesia. The Chinese do infrastructure, however, a little bit differently than some of these other countries, particularly like the Japanese who have been at it for decades. The Chinese are a little bit more insistent on using Chinese technology and particularly Chinese labor. And that sometimes rubs local governments the wrong way. And so it can be a little controversial. The Japanese, I think, have a little bit more experience and a little bit more sensitive to the local context than the Chinese are at this point. I guess whether Japanese or Chinese or, or other sources of foreign investment, is this something that under Jokowi Indonesia is actively pursuing and, and is it something that it needs to be? It's actively pursuing and it's something that it, it definitely needs to be. The, the infrastructure needs of Indonesia are so great that the state simply cannot fulfill the demand. And so it's going to have to turn to the private sector. And in Indonesia, 
the private sector has been very hesitant to invest in a lot of infrastructure projects, largely because of cost benefit or profit or commercial orientation of these projects have been a little weak. And so these governments are coming in, filling that gap, obviously not for free, but they are providing capital. They also would like political influence on other fronts. Uh, they would like their technology used or their capital used, like I said before, the, the labor used in terms of the Chinese. So it's a delicate balancing game, but it is something Indonesia, if it's going to improve its infrastructure, it definitely needs. I mean, do you think Indonesia presents an attractive destination for foreign investment for infrastructure at the moment? A double-edged sword. On the one hand, absolutely. The growth potential in Indonesia uh, is great. It has increasing economic wealth, expanding middle class, very young population. So the profit potential there is great. And that's what draws some of this investment. On the other hand, there's a weak rule of law, weak institutions, unclear rules, conflicting policies, conflicting priorities, responsibilities among ministries between the central government, local government. So it's a kind of a minefield out there, which leads to a lot of uncertainties. That's why you see investment in Indonesia, but you don't see the numbers that some economists would suggest Indonesia needs to promote growth at a higher rate, above the 4 to 5% range. That's why Indonesia is not reaching the 6 7 8% these days. Now, uh, at the risk of distorting your earlier point, you mentioned some of the earlier private sector investment in infrastructure in Indonesia came when Sahato's children started to develop their business interests. And I guess more recently, we've seen people like the Vice President Yusuf Kala, the former head of Golka, Abu Rizal Bakri, as powerful business people who have done very well at, at obtaining government contracts for their firms to construct infrastructure. Looking more broadly, how does rent-seeking affect the infrastructure sector in Indonesia and, and have these powerful individuals really been able to bend the sector to their, to their interests? They've been able to affect the infrastructure sector quite considerably. Like, as you already mentioned in your question, they seem to be the ones who somehow, obviously, always getting these kinds of contracts, even though they're supposed to be competitive bids or tenders. They went up with these contracts, and it's very hard for the government to get the investment rolling in these contracts, particularly for projects that maybe in the end it turns out weren't as profitable as the conglomerates of Bakri, of Kala, and so forth thought in the beginning. So they sit on the licenses, and it's very politically sensitive to pull them. Sometimes Indonesia is under pressure from more technocratic or neoliberal pressures from certain ministries uh, like finance or the World Bank. And so they do pass on the books some what you would possibly call good governance type rules and regulations in these different sectors, infrastructure being just one of them. But oftentimes, because of Indonesia, the rule of law is quite porous. It's as equally feasible to pass kind of what you would call counter regulations, maybe at not the level of parliament, but in the ministries themselves, the minister could be under great pressure from some of these strong political businessmen. And they pass rules and regulations that contravene some of the higher standing law. Now, in a typical rule of law situation, higher standing law should have more say 
be more authoritative than the, uh, for example, a ministerial degree. So, so these businessmen work kind of behind the scenes, particularly in the ministries that are under as direct pressure as like a president would be from the World Bank or the IMF. And they get laws passed in their favor. For example, if they were supposed to, upon receiving a contract, within two years, start building or investing a certain percentage. It's very easy for them to get a ministerial letter to get that two years turned into three years or that three years turned into four years. And then before you know it, they've sold a license to somebody else. So that's where a lot of the rent seeking takes place. And you see consistently the delays in projects in Indonesia. Uh, That's a big problem. Okay. So this rent seeking, it's not just about winning individual contracts, but it's also about reshaping the rules of the game so that the the contracts that you've won become more profitable for you. Yes. And then once you realize that you might not have the money to invest in it, you sell it for a profit to somebody else. And the government can only hope that that next bidder, the next winner, will actually invest in the project. Sometimes it's sold to another private investor. Sometimes it's sold back to a state-owned enterprise. Do these powerful, I guess, political business people essentially control the sector or are others, including the government, able to counter their influence? It's a big pot. I, I wouldn't say there's like a conspiracy and they're out there orchestrating every move, but they have a lot of influence. And look, infrastructure in Indonesia does get built, right? That The airport, there's a new terminal coming up, the MRT is being built. So it's not like the rent seeking is so horrendous or such a kind of predatory state where the money disappears and nothing gets done, but it gets done much longer than it has to. It gets done in a more inefficient way. So costs wind up being 50%, 100% higher. Now, the question is, this is pretty typical in infrastructure around the world. Even in, in states, for example, in the US, the famous one is the Big Dig in Boston, years late and billions over budget. So it's not very specific to Indonesia, but it is specific to Indonesia where you really have heads of large conglomerates who are at the same time government officials uh, controlling these contracts and the pace of construction and the selling of licenses. Beyond the influence of these heads of conglomerates, in traipsing around Indonesia, I can recall speaking to a local public works official and basically saying there was no point in technocratically planning roads in his area as these plans would simply be laid to waste in the parliament uh, as each MP brought their interest to the table in terms of things being built in their specific areas or particular, I guess, particular people being involved. Is that overall a fair characterization of the role of the parliament and the bureaucracy in building infrastructure in Indonesia, that there's a, I guess, resistance to technocratic planning because of the political influence that will then come in from the parliament? I think that's an incisive point and a fair characterization to an extent. I think that's more prevalent at the local level. So local or regional uh, road building, if you're talking about something at the national level, this is still under the charge or the responsibility of the national government. So local bureaucrats or local politicians have to take a back seat. Now, they have their own ways of getting their own rent seeking or getting some things out of this project. But on the whole, for example, toll roads is is a graphic illustration here. This is really under the purview of the central government. 
Now, this has to do with decentralization in Indonesia in the kind of post-Suharto era, where they devolved a lot of powers to the local governments, including infrastructure. But there's been a lot of tussle and a lot of mistrust between the central government and, and local government when it comes to building infrastructure. But if the project itself is categorized legally as a national project, then it falls under the purview of the central government. In those situations, technocratic planning may win out, but technocratic investment, as I mentioned in my previous answer, doesn't necessarily win out because you still need to get these conglomerates to invest and they're not willing to invest until the conditions on the ground are in their liking. And that could take a long time. If we do go to the national level, what, what role is the parliament playing? Uh, are we seeing major alterations to infrastructure projects or to the rules of infrastructure being initiated by the parliament? Do we see different approaches between political parties or, or something different? Even though Parliament today is supposed to be taking a more active role in policymaking, more empowered Parliament, I didn't see any real constructive debates among Parliament or at the party level on the approach to infrastructure. Their basically role was to complain, why isn't this being done faster? No one really took up issues, for example, why do we need all these new toll roads in Java? What about the environmental impact? What about impact towards food security if these goes through some uh, rice growing areas? What about questions of national equity? Should we really be spending this money, for example, in Kalimantan or, or uh, infrastructure poor areas in Sumatra? Those debates were far and few between. When you have, say, a national budget uh, and its infrastructure allocation come before the parliament for, for review, or you have you know, some of the major pieces of legislation that you outline in your book have been passed over the past decade or so, laws on roads, on electricity, on compulsory acquisition, uh, what, what sort of debate is happening in the parliament? The debates happen not at the party level, but they happen at the committee level. So it's inter-party debate. So if you pass laws, there will be, depending upon the law, pushback, resistance, or real input at the committee level to change certain laws. Not necessarily the approach, like should we be more state-owned enterprise or more private sector, but uh, some of the, I guess at the margins, there will be some input from the parliament. The one bill that there was a lot of input from Parliament that is central to the infrastructure sector was the bill on releasing land or eminent domain bill. And there was a lot of back and forth negotiating between that particular committee and public works and the president's office to get the language of that bill in a way that satisfied Parliament in protection of of landowners in their constituencies. And I guess anyone casually following the sector would have the feeling that land acquisition has been one of the major obstacles to constructing infrastructure. You, you see reports of it every, uh, these sort of delays every, every time sort of infrastructure projects uh, seem to be planned. Could you outline what are some of the issues that the government and the parliament are grappling with when they legislate about compulsorily acquiring land and how intractable a problem has, has it been in Indonesia so far? It's been an extremely intractable problem. But I would like to caution that if you, as you mentioned, when you read the newspapers, you see this being blamed for the reason why infrastructure is slow or infrastructure development is delayed in Indonesia. That's true, but up to a point. I would say 
that's half the picture. The other half of the picture is what we had concentrated on earlier, is the unwillingness of the license holders to actually invest in the projects for which they obtain the license. But to return to the problem of compulsory, compulsory land acquisition, this has been a big problem in Indonesia for decades. And that's one of the reasons why it's so intractable, because it has a history to it. States around the world, democratic or, or otherwise, have these powers to take land for public interest projects. And it's very contentious. Indonesia, however, has the same kinds of powers. But under Suharto, the problem was that the law, while they were on the books, weren't necessarily followed. They were followed, but the laws were written in a way that were so vague and gave so much power to the government, there really wasn't many legal protections for the people on the ground. So you developed a lot of mistrust, plus a lot of the public good or public uh, interest projects weren't necessarily so public interest. Land was being taken for uh, housing developments, elite housing developments, uh, golf courses, some tourist resorts. So the, the, there was great questions over the public interest nature of a lot of these projects. But of course, under the new order, you have a pretty strong state. You have a military that's quite involved in some of the land taking. And so it was a very coercive process. As you transition into the post-Suharto era and prominence of human rights, consciousness as enshrined in the, in the new post-Suharto constitutions, an arising consciousness, not even at the elite level in the constitutions, but among the public with increasing democratization, a weaker state, less coercion. You have the army pulling back from being the enforcer of land appropriation. And so you have a, a, a more of a, a balancing of power between state and society on this issue. Uh, Yudha Yoda was very reluctant to involuntarily take this land that people, most people I felt through my research were willing to sell the land to the state for these projects, but they wanted to sell the land at what they felt was a fair market price. And the government basically was not meeting them on that demand. And the government was trying to undercut them, forcing them to give up their land for you know, a quarter, a fifth of the price. And that's where a lot of the problems happen. And I mean, when the government's offering sort of a quarter, a fifth of the market price, uh, what interests are at play there? Is it sort of people are pocketing the difference or it's inadequate allocations uh, overall to the project or, or what's going on? The government just doesn't want to spend all that money. They, they, they have a budget and they, uh, they'll claim it's, for example, they'll claim it's fair market price. But the, when, the, when the license for the project or the permit comes out, for example, in 2010, they'll say this is the market price. But in Indonesia, the project doesn't get built until 2014, 2015, for example. So in the four years or five years with market prices, uh, land prices uh, in, in Indonesia, particularly Java, are skyrocketing. Uh, the, the government is trying to make them take the 2010 price when the project's permit. But these people lived in their houses for four years under great uncertainty. Wasn't sure when the project was finally going to get built. It finally begins to get built. Lo and behold, here's the government saying, well, this is the, the, the agreed price, but that's five years old. And so whether or not these people sell often has to do with local context. I guess something you can call social power. The more leverage these people have 
in a collective action way, they may get a better deal. The more leverage the, the government has, uh, the lower the price they're going to be forced to take. Is it fair to say then that if the government was willing to pay market price, most of the problems of land acquisition would simply go away? Absolutely. What's taking away from a systematic approach to land acquisition? Yeah, so this has been a little bit of a mess, and this is a, a, a illustrative of the politics of decentralization in the post-Suharto era. So what you had originally was land matters, land authorities were decentralized to the local government. So the, the, the main land body in Indonesia lost a lot of its powers. It was always seen as a very inefficient and corrupt organization or agency. So a lot of this gets evolved to the local level. But then you have a project, for example, like National Toll Road Network. That is our national project. So who's in charge of the projects? The central government. But who's in charge of getting the land released or bought in order to build the projects? That's the local governments. So the local governments, you can imagine what they're not very happy with this. They're not in charge of the projects. So they're not learning. They're not getting any real cut from them. And if you are a local politician, you know that the road's not going to be built for a long time. You might even be out of office by the time the road does get built. Because in the long term, there is local benefits, jobs. You would hope that companies would build near the exits. And so job generation, not just through construction. But that's going to take a long time. In the meantime, they're interested in getting their cut. So what do they do? They, they foot drag on forcing people, citizens, to give up their lands. They say to the central government, oh, where's the money, right? The central government hasn't released the money to the local governments to pay because the central government's still waiting for the investor to, to release his funds to know that the project is going to be built. So it's like this vicious circle. Meanwhile, sometimes local government officials or politicians get wind of where the road's going to go. So they go around buying up parcels of land as well, knowing the land prices are going to increase. And so they slow down the, this whole process. So they're getting their cut. They're kind of rent-seeking as well. But it's very hard to, hard to keep them accountable. So eventually what happened after about 10 years of this, the central government finally passed in 2012 a new land acquisition bill. And they re-centralized the process back into basically Jakarta's hands, which really goes against the spirit of decentralization, which doesn't really make the local officials very happy either. So it was a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I thought one of the interesting points you set out in your book is the way that each successive government's performance on infrastructure is in fact importantly shaped by the decisions made by their predecessors. So in Yudhoyono's case, things that Megawati, Gusto and the like did uh, in, affected the, the starting point uh, for him. Could you talk us through that a bit? Just fast forwarding to the case of Jokowi, what sort of starting point did the Yudhoyono government bequeath to him? This is very clear in the 2012 land acquisition bill. So this land bill was certainly bequeathed, passed in 2012. Then you have to wait in Indonesia's legal tradition. The laws don't work themselves, right? The, the higher, highest standing parliamentary statute. Then you have to wait for the, the ministerial, more technical legislation or, or, or regulations to come out. And this takes months, if not years. By the time you get the, enough of a legal framework in the, in, in the Indonesian context to implement this, 
Jokowi's already in power. So this is all this has been bequeathed to Jokowi, and this is what he's got to work with. Jokowi now can't spend political capital redoing the land bill. He has to work with what he has. One of the other prominent things we saw to the end, towards the end of the Udiono government was this master plan for accelerating economic development, the uh, MP3EI. Is that something that also importantly shapes the, the options that Jokowi has in terms of constructing infrastructure? Yeah, I, I would think that most of the infrastructure that he's trying to get built were designed in that master plan. But for Jokowi, this is not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of the legwork, a lot of the design work, the policy work, the non-glamorous stuff was done prior to him. And now he can come in and just implement and get these things built. When you look at the first couple of years of Jokowi's government, does he look like a, a different leader when it comes to infrastructure than what Yudhoyono was? Yes, he does. But Yudhoyono laid, although he couldn't deliver the output, Put, so to speak, he laid a lot of the groundwork, the design, the master plan, uh, a lot of the license flipping were kind of slowed down towards the end of the Udiono administration, the land bill. So Jokowi has a, an advantage. He was also took the politically brazen decision to cut the oil fuel subsidies that Udiono really wasn't and, and then apply this you know, trillions of windfall, uh, trillions of rupiah to these infrastructure projects. So, you know, it's, it's not all path dependency. You do have choice. You can make policies. And to make that decision and free up that money and to spend it in the field getting these projects built, he deserves a credit for. Finally, what are the, what are the factors we should really be watching with Jokowi over the next three years to see how close he might get to some of the infrastructure targets his, his government has set? I think specifically things we've already touched on. SOEs, does he really have the control over them that he believes he has. There's been a lot of governance reforms and a kind of more neoliberal trajectory on SOEs. Some of them are partially privatized. There's more commercial orientation among a lot of these SOEs where they can't be as easily forced to take on large projects that they know are basically political projects for which they're going to lose uh, their shirts over. Uh, then there's, of course, the foreign direct investment, the Chinese versus the Japanese. Maybe Indonesia can play these two regional powerhouses off each other and do well. But, you know, there's always there's already some grumbling among the Japanese when it comes to the, the Japan had an agreement over the high speed rail between Jakarta and Bandung. Then at the last minute, it was kind of switched to the, the Chinese Japanese are still building the Jakarta MRT, but I'm sure they're not very happy what happened in the high-speed rail. So it's a very del delicate balancing game. And then two final points, obviously, whether or not the, the regional government and central government tussles and mismatch of incentive structures can be resolved. And then on the ground, right, whether or not these people whose land are going to be needed to build some of these projects, whether or not these people are going to get fair deals uh, for their land, maybe those four points. Now, Jamie, there's still a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid uh, we're well and truly out of time. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today and, and sharing your insights. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Associate Professor Jamie Davidson from the National University of Singapore, author of Indonesia's Changing Political Economy, Governing the Roads. Remember, you can find the entire archive of the Talk Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. 
My colleague Dr. Ken Satyawan will be back on the 6th of October with the next episode. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.